The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guests illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, a conversation of hope for Tuesday, August 25th. I'm Terry Arango with my guests, Dr. Roy Leonardi and Lori McElwain. On July 7th, we talked with Lori McElwain of the National Autism Association about restraint and seclusion of special ed students in schools. A National Autism Association release cited that in May of 2009, a government report listed 19 state governments that have yet to regulate the practices of restraint and seclusion in schools. The report also cited multiple cases of improper restraint and seclusion resulting in death, injury, and emotional trauma of children with varying disabilities. Lori is joined today by Dr. Roy Leonardi, Assistant Professor in the School of Education and Professional Studies Department of Special Education at Central Connecticut State University. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Lori, let's start with you reminding us about the May 2009 Government Accountability Office Report on Restraint and Seclusion in Schools. Sure. Um, It was released uh, towards the end of May. It found no federal laws in place that regulate restraint and seclusion. It found uh, that state regulations are pretty widely divergent and that 19 states have nothing that regulate restraint and seclusion in schools. Revealed 10, 10 cases where children with varying disabilities died, uh, either as a result of restraint or seclusion, where they were seriously harmed or emotionally traumatized. Um, and because there are no laws in place, many of the people responsible for this kind of abuse uh, still work within the school system. Some of the case studies that were listed in the GAO report uh, included a 14-year-old boy who was suffocated, a 4-year-old who was tied with leather straps to a chair and beaten. Uh, How how widespread is this problem? What's the scope of the problem? We're seeing it everywhere. And honestly, it's starting to feel like an everyday occurrence where another news story comes in or another email from a family comes in outlining a case of abuse. Um, This is not... Uh, isolated to any one state or any one side of the country. It's everywhere. So it's a huge problem that's on the rise. Our, uh, obviously, our schools are lacking resources. Um, they're lacking proper training. We obviously need some sort of uh, surveillance monitoring system that's going to help. Because there are more kids with autism, there are more problems in the classroom. There are more uh, needs that are not being met. There's there's less resources for them. So huge, huge crisis right now. And of the cases that the GAO reviewed, at least 20 had led to the death of a child, 
and all of them had some form of disability. Dr. Leonardi, when does restraint become dangerous and abuse? You know, as soon as as soon as an adult starts to use uh, restraint on a child, it automatically becomes a dangerous situation, especially children with disabilities, especially children with autism, because they don't understand what's going on. They see a restraint or the attempt to restraint as an attack. Uh, they they don't understand um, anything other than somebody's putting hands on their body, and I, I think that if adults understood um, th- that if a stranger were to grab them, that they would really be worried and they would resist, and that is what happens <clears throat> to children with disabilities, especially to children with autism. Uh, first of all, they don't understand what's happening. Second of all, um, they, they have uh, problems with ex- expressive communication, so the what happens is, and the reason why we are seeing um, an increase in damage to children with disabilities is exactly the same process that's happening in the greater society. We are seeing an increase um, in child abuse, but not just an increase, but an increase in the number of children who are being abused and then the increase in severity of the abuse. And as soon as, as soon as somebody puts hands on a child and an adult puts hands on a child, uh, they create a situation that could go from very bad to very worst. Well, maybe we should define some terms for our listeners. Let's define restraint, seclusion, and de-escalation. Restraint would be um, preventing a child from moving one or more limbs. Seclusion would be taking a child and putting them out of sight, and going out of sight means going going out of mind. And de-escalation is an adult taking a situation that could possibly become extreme and using um, both uh, physical and verbal cues to calm the child down. So de-escalation done correctly is the right, sounds like the right way to go. What what are the types of restraints? Um, holding um, holding one or both of the child's limbs is that that would be restraint. That would be hands-on restraint. We also uh, have seen children get restrained. I think, as you said in that report, where children are tied down, and I, I don't know if anybody has ever been. Anybody listening to this has ever been in a situation where uh, all four of your limbs are restrained or um, or tied down? You know, in other words, physically restrained by an adult, but also tied down by an adult. That is uh, a situation for uh, panic. Mm-hmm. And little children with um, I mean, any person with autism, especially, is going to see this as something really terrible. And there. Are- there is, uh, from my understanding, Lori, prone restraint and supine restraint. And what are these like and what are the dangers inherent with those? Well, the deadliest is prone restraint. Prone restraint pretty much means you're, you're laying the child face down. You're straining the child face down. Uh, the, this is the restraint that has killed so many kids. Um, 
A lot of times the teachers don't notice that the child is turning blue. They don't notice that the child has stopped breathing. Uh, it's, it's harder for the child to express any sort of uh, need to breathe. Um, there's also supine restraint that is uh, laying the child's face up. Also very dangerous, but not as dangerous as prone restraint. Now, Laura, you also made me aware of the fact that a big problem is that uh, people think that if a person can talk, it means they can breathe. So that when they're in the prone restraint position, if they're saying, I can't breathe, people won't believe them. People won't believe mm-hmm. the child because they're talking. Right, yeah. You can still talk and, and your body's pretty much already shutting down. Uh, a lot of times teachers who hear a child say, I, I can't breathe, they, they think they're faking it, they don't believe them. Um, obviously, they think they can breathe because they're talking. So it's, it's been an issue, uh, and it's also been one of the things mentioned in the report, that the last words that a child says. Dr. Leonardi, you talked about the increase uh, of abuse in the population, but have you seen any change in the population of special education students over the years that you've been uh, in this field? I've seen um, especially an increase in children with autism. We have documentation of that. And then also children that have severe disabilities because um, the the medical technology that's been developed, uh, especially over the last 10 years, has been able to keep children alive who who would have, um, you know, died, especially early on. For instance, children with Down syndrome, uh, the medical technology that we have today, uh, especially with um, where they had problems with heart problems, the, I think they even today they can do in, in utero heart repair. So we're seeing an increase of children with uh, severe disabilities as well as children with autism in our general population. Mm-hmm. Lori, any comments? Well, it, 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 soon it's rumored that two reports will come out um, pretty much naming the, the new numbers for autism as 1 in 100. Uh, obviously, the rise in, in autism cases has exploded throughout the country. Uh, there's been sort of theories surrounded by that. Uh, but we do know for sure that there's a lack of resources. Um, this is a growing problem, and we have too many kids with disabilities, not enough uh, teachers, and certainly not enough trained teachers. Right. Mm-hmm. Dr. Leonardi? Well, there are two programs that uh, that I've been trained in and that I've seen used effectively. One is uh, CPI, uh, Crisis Prevention Institute, and the other is TCI. And both of these programs uh, teach people how to restrain, uh, teach adults how to restrain uh, children or patients effectively without causing damage. However, in the training for these two programs, the initial part of their training sessions stress de-escalating the child uh, before you get to the point where you have to restrain them. In other words, the adult is responsible for creating the environment where you don't have to use, uh, where you don't have to use restraint. You know, it's sort of like a takeoff on Skinner who says, you know, if you change the environment, you change the behavior. And I think that really is critical in training people. All right, we talked with... uh... Phyllis Musumici on July 7th as well, and she observes that what these kids uh, don't need are seclusion rooms. What they need are sensory rooms. 
Mm-hmm. Exactly, and that's yes. part of the de-escalation process. Uh, these these rooms are no better than solitary confinement in jails, and our children are being thrown into them, as seen on on video surveillance, uh, in dark rooms. With no one there, the doors locked. Several kids have died from this. One child in particular hung himself. Uh, it's, it's the de-escalation method that needs to be focused on here. Positive behavioral support needs to be focused on here. And right now that's just not happening. But schools and teachers will argue, special interest groups uh, will argue, just like you said, Lori, that they don't have the resources. And, you know, definitely, you know, we want... Uh, training instead of torture, and they'll say they don't have the resources, and what happens if someone's aggressive towards them? Well, I'll go back to something that Dr. Leonardi uh, told me uh, a couple of weeks ago that I love, and he said, you don't need training to be nice. Um, We're putting uh, teachers in an overwhelming situation where they are losing control. They're losing it. Um, They don't know how to handle it. They don't have the resources or the training. They, um, somebody just said to me, too, I was on a, a phone call before this about this issue, um, teachers feel like that if they have control of the classroom, they have control of the child. And it's becoming a control issue with, with teachers and aides a lot of times. We need to find a way to where they, they respond properly, they react properly. Properly. They know how to react, and they know the consequences of using any kind of dangerous restraint. Uh, that currently is not available on a universal level. Why, I don't know. There needs to be some form of training, universal training available to all, all districts, all teachers, all aides, anybody who works with our children. Um, they need this resource. All right. When we come back from break, more on... Cameras, consequences, and training at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you to our sponsor, Medica. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. 
Inside all of us lives a warrior. We win battles with our careers, our finances, our children, our pets. It's time that the warrior within wins the battles with our own being. Modern-day Renaissance man Ori Hoffmeckler dispels eating urban legends and fitness myths in Voice America Network's The Warrior Within. Your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Ori sets the record straight and will help you become leaner and healthier for a lifetime. The Warrior Within broadcasts live every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in for your guide to nutrition, energy, sex, and survival. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Roy Leonardi, Assistant Professor in the School of Education and Professional Studies, Department of Special Education at Central Connecticut State University, and Lori McElwain, co-founder and chairperson of the board of the National Autism Association, talking about deadly restraint and seclusion of special ed students in schools and um, how we can prevent that with, for one thing, better training of staff members. And we're going to pick up with that in this segment, but Lori, first you have an announcement. I do. Uh, wonderful parent advocate and mother, Carolyn uh, Gamici, wrote um, asking if families could uh, give their stories because a family will be meeting with Congressman Miller. This is Chairman Miller of the uh, Education um, Committee, and they're going to meet meeting with him tomorrow in his home district in San Francisco, and anybody who wants to uh, provide their personal stories, please do so, and you can um, send your letter to Chairman Miller um, by contacting Carrie, and I'll let you give your contact information. Okay. Uh, if you would like the contact information for Adrian Ucino brown of Congressman Miller's office, you can email me at taranga at autism1.org, T-A-R-R-A-N-G-A, at A-U-T-I-S-M-O-N-E dot org. Uh, her fax number, Adrian Yusino Brown's fax number is 925-674-0983, 925-674-0983. She has a really long email address, but you're welcome to email me for that. And uh, the family will be addressing the issue of seclusion and restraint, but also lack of police training and victimization and abuse issues. So we need to get these letters in really quickly, so please feel free uh, to contact me today. Lori, before the break, you were talking about the fact that stiffer consequences were needed for abuse on the part of staff members, and also you had another really good suggestion about what would cut down on abuse in classrooms. Um, really, Dr. Leonardi, do you want to answer that? No, go right ahead, please. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, yeah, surveillance is necessary. There needs to be video surveillance in, in every special ed classroom in America. Um, by the way, I mean, as, as soon as we possibly can get it without any kind of talk of, you know, lack of funding, because what's happening is uh, families are suing schools when the child is abused, when the child has been killed. They're losing funding anyway because of the liability component. So, 
uh, funding for surveillance is imperative. We also need a better reporting system so that people can report acts of abuse. Uh, we also need, um, again, better training, better methods of uh, positive behavioral support, de-escalation, um, and we need more resources within our classrooms. And I just want to say, before I forget, because I think I forgot the last time to say this, but anybody who can volunteer in a special ed classroom, please do. I used to volunteer in my son's special ed classroom. Uh, they, they definitely could use the help, and it is a great way to help give them some of the support they need. All right. Um, Dr. Leonardi, you had some really great tips for uh training for teachers, signs that something is going terribly wrong in, in classrooms and situations and de-escalation. Can you tell us about all this? The uh, training, the types of training? Well, when you can tell that a situation is getting out of hand, the general philosophy that teachers and aides should go by when they're encountering situations that they, they need to show some extra TLC in, the, a, a clue to a um, um, situation breaking down is when uh, you have a child who is extremely upset and is acting out and saying things, and you see that the adult is behaving in a similar fashion as the child. Now the situation breaks down completely, and those are the situations that escalate. And in any of the training programs that have been used, I, I spent a lot of time in uh, institutional types of settings as well as public schools, um, a lot of time, a lot of the training is done with adults uh, not to get engaged by the child because then the child, uh, you know, they, Laurie talked about, you know, it's a, it's a situation of power. However, uh, once the child has the adult uh, upset, now the child is controlling the situation. And most of the, all of the training that I know of, the, uh, the adult is trained to not become involved in the child's, in other words, not going to the child's house in pain. The, child's in the, the child is in pain. They want somebody to share this with them. They get really upset, and the adult goes into that house, and then you have the child and the adult upset. The only problem is, especially with um, inclusion types of classrooms, once a teacher or an aide becomes um, involved or connects with the child in an angry way, you're also scaring all the other children. And I don't see how any type of education is going to take place for the rest of the day once the teacher gets so upset at the child that they're raising their voice, they're grabbing the child, and, and sometimes these children are restrained in front of the other children. I can't imagine that the other children are going to function in a classroom educationally after a situation like that. That's a really good point. So, in other words, what we're saying that not only for the child who's being grievously injured, but also for other children in that environment, that any positive effects that we may hope to achieve from things like applied behavior analysis, occupational therapy, speech therapy, um, floor time, and any other interventions we're using in a school setting are just going to be uh, blown away, nullified, because of these situations of abuse. Yes, yes. 
Why is it that the Children's Health Act um, of 2000 protected children from abusive practices in other types of facilities like group homes, hospitals, and treatment centers, but doesn't protect children from these types of practices in schools? I believe probably lobbying. There was very effective lobbying done um, on the part of different um, educational associations to not be treated the same as an institutional setting. And what we see in institutional settings, uh, especially settings that have had uh, problems with uh, restraint, the the, uh, the state the state agencies and the state advocacy agencies step in and have the staff trained. You know, it's well, either you get trained or you're not going to receive funding from us. We're not going to send your children. Good point. Yeah, and, and Lori, you were making that point about cameras, and you might as well spend the money on cameras <laughs> in the classroom because. Um, when children are grievously injured or killed, parents are just going to end up um, suing the school system uh, anyway, and you're going to lose the money that way. But uh, And, of course, I want to emphasize to all listeners that um, the, the most important thing to do is prevent injury in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. Money never makes up for that. Uh, but uh, I yeah. also think, Lori, that the way these bureaucracies work is that the pocketbooks are separate, and so the pocketbook that spends the money on the cameras doesn't care about the pocketbook that spends the money on the, uh, paying off lawsuits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, Children's Health Act that was more of a Medicaid thing uh, with the cameras in the classrooms and the funding and the, and the liability, and I want to stress that um, a lot of times the parents need to file a lawsuit because their their child cannot go back to that that. They should not go back to that school. And no parent in their right mind is going to trust the public school ever again unless they have the monetary resources to get some sort of shadow or one-on-one that can accompany that child at all times or put that child in a private facility where they have an aid or a one-on-one. As a parent, if this happened to my child, I would be homeschooling. Mm -hmm. Um, Every every parent who who has a child that's been abused – Obviously, you're going to remove that child from from the school, and the the liability there is on the school. So they have to pay for that child's future. The idea is to help our children progress, not regress. And what these schools are doing uh, when they don't put the proper methods in place to keep these children from getting abused is they're making them regress. And we, you know, obviously our parents need the funding um, to help get the child back to where they were before, you know, so many of these children were glass. So liability, lawsuits, it's, it's not like we're going to go out and, and buy a boat. Um, right. These parents, you know, are using that money to help their child who has been abused, and you're exactly right. The, the best thing to do is to prevent the abuse in the first place. Um, money ne- never makes up for your child um, not being protected when it's your job to protect the child. Right, exactly. Dr. Leonardi, any comments? Um, in I've had a, I just had a recent experience within the last two years where um, a child with autism had all sorts of problems in the public school, including being restrained by people who really weren't trained in restraint. And the whole situation went to due process, and the due process hearing officer found that the, um, they find an, uh, a private special education facility in Connecticut where the child would have a chance to succeed, and also where the people were trained. Now, 
the between the transportation, the specialized services, and the tuition for the school, I'm, I'm and, and also for summer school, I'm figuring that that school district is paying probably in excess of $130,000 a year, and the child's been there for almost two years now and will probably stay there for a while longer. So I'm thinking in about four or five years, this is going to become um, a million-dollar case, and that money comes right out of the, the taxpayer's pocket. Uh, you know, it's going to the, these places, the, the transportation, the school, the therapists, all get paid almost immediately. And just think of all of that money had they could have hired uh, five teachers for that child uh, to stay with him at the amount of money that they're spending. On the other hand, they could have uh, trained, uh, brought in a special ed teacher uh, that would handle children with severe behavioral difficulties. As a matter of fact, the child doesn't have severe problems where he is now because the staff is trained. All of that money could have been put into training and extra staff, and the child would have benefited from it as well as other children that were outplaced in that district. It doesn't make financially any sense to me why school districts don't pay for people to come in and train their staff. Absolutely. Excellent points. When we come back from the break, which we'll be going to soon, we'll describe the training that is needed. Um, I think it's a sad... Oh, there we go. We'll be right back. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. Don't go away. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. Tune in on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart, the program that takes you on a journey through grief after the death of a child. Join Dr. Gloria Horsley, marriage and family therapist and bereaved parent, while she interviews and discusses with other bereaved parents and siblings how they have coped with the death of a child and gone on to create and realize new dreams. So tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart with Dr. Gloria Horsley, right here on Voice America Health and Wellness. Holistic living is nutrition for not just your body, but your mind and your soul. Holistic nutrition goes far beyond the foods that we eat or the supplements that we take. Discover natural means to heal your body and regain your innate healing powers. That's Holistic Living with Tina Marie Jones on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. Tune in for your weekly dose of good holistic living. 
Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with Dr. Roy Leonardi and Lori McElwain. And Dr. Leonardi, um, you wanted to share an experience that you had. Yes. Um, last July, um, I I had a stroke, a severe stroke, and um, I was in uh, intensive care for about five weeks. But for three of those weeks, I was um, I was unconscious. I was in a coma, and when, as I was coming out of the coma. Uh, stroke victims can become very, very psychotic, and that's where I was, and I had to be restrained. And they used a very soft cloth to restrain me, and they had somebody with me um, 100% of the time. Even at night, they had they hired a college student to come and sit with me to make sure that I was okay. And they continuously would um, untie me, you know, release me to see if I was going to be okay. And that was very, very, um, you know, in retrospect, that was very, very comforting. And they didn't keep me restrained, um, I think, longer than three or four days. But I did go through that experience. And then when I went to uh, another hospital, St. Francis Hospital in uh, in Connecticut, in their Mount Sinai unit, um, they have a, a very, very highly structured rehab center there. And um, the therapists, the whole staff, um, including uh, the nurses, um, they never, and I mean like 100% of the time, they never showed impatience, they never got angry, they never raised their voices, they were completely gentle, and the only thing I could think of while I was going through that is we should bring teachers here or take videos of this and show this to teachers because if they think children are difficult to manage, try 250 275-pound adults who become unruly. Wow. And none of those people, none of the staff um, really laid hands, um, and the whole time I was there, nobody laid hands on any of the adults to restrain them. They all used verbal de-escalation methods. Okay, so you feel that on the part of professionals, it's their responsibility to de-escalate using a child using verbal intervention. Yes, Okay, and how about um, if someone uses restraints that they need, uh, these these soft restraints that were used, they need training to use them? Yes, okay. yes. And if and you don't know how to do it, you shouldn't do it? That's true. If you don't know how to restrain, you shouldn't restrain because you're putting the child, for sure you're putting the child at risk of injury or death. And you also put yourself at risk of injury. There's a very, very, a very, very upset um, five or six year old who may weigh fifty or sixty pounds uh, can pull it, and, and you know when they get the adrenaline pumping, they can pull an adult over. And the adult, you know, as an example, if an adult falls on a child, especially if there are other children watching, it looks like the adult has attacked the child, and there's no way around that. Plus, when the adult falls, um, a lot of people that I, you know, adults that I know aren't trained to just fall. I don't think any anybody's just trained to fall. And that's one of the things that happens. So if an adult is 
talking calmly to a child for de-escalation, uh, should another adult ever join in? Yes. Uh, should as as should a um, only, but only in, all, in the training, especially with CPI, only one adult talks at a time. And that, if you have ever witnessed um, situations where an adult in a school has tried to de-escalate a child, if there's no training, you have two or three adults talking to the child or talking at the child. Children with autism who have, um, you know, who have um, communication issues don't know how to handle that. That becomes very confusing. It would be like you having two televisions and a radio one. And with uh, CPI in particular, only one adult talks at a time. If that adult starts to raise their voice, the other adults are trained to step in and take over the conversation. All right. So let's talk about the training itself. Walk us through. It sounds to me like the first thing that's necessary in training, and, and I'm just guessing here, I haven't been through this training, is that the people working with the children need to actually know about the children. Like you just said, if you have several adults talking to a child with autism at the same time, that's going to be confusing. They don't process things in the same uh, sensory manner as the, the next guy. So you have yes. to know and respect the child. That's true. Okay, then what happens? Then if you have uh, two or three people talking at once to a child who has uh, receptive communication issues, you're going to escalate the child. That's a given. And, um, and then in, in those instances... The, the number of adults that are there, increase, the, the problem increases uh, incrementally very, very quickly. And then the child starts to act out, and then we get into physical restraint. With the training that you have with uh, programs like CPI and TCI, um, only one adult is going to talk at a time. The other adults are there to support both parties during the conversation. And unless the child is going to do something where they're going to injure themselves or, you know, really injure somebody else, the, the need for restraint is not necessary. You know, when a, when a child talks back to, uh, especially children with autism um, or sometimes children with Down syndrome, they will talk back and it's kind of a processing that they, you know, it's a language processing that they, that they go through. If you don't respond to that, they tend to de-escalate. Okay. So it's the adult's responsibility to de-escalate uh, with verbal intervention. It's mm -hmm. the adult's responsibility to model appropriate behavior. It's the adult's responsibility to remain calm. And if they feel they're losing control of um, their ability to remain calm, hand off the conversation to another calm adult. Exactly. What is exactly. it an indication of if the adult has to put hands on? that they've lost control of the situation. A lot of our psychiatric uh, facilities today, uh, they train the staff to uh, keep hands off and putting hands on is absolutely a last resort. My, my wife works at um, the Mount Sinai unit at St. Francis Hospital, and she works in, in a psychiatric section with uh, children uh, between from age 17 on down to very, very young children. And the staff, and the, the professional staff and the support staff are all trained to keep their hands off the children um, 
unless something really, really drastic happens. And I would say that they probably, and this is in a psychiatric facility for children, they probably don't put hands on a child more than, I would say, once a month, and that, that would be maybe a stretch. What's it a sign of if you are restraining a child uh, very often in a school situation? Then you don't have um, you don't have a good IEP. If the child is in a um, is on an IEP, if they're in special education, and you start restraining, and this goes on, the child is restrained in September and is still being restrained in at the end of the school year in June. Then there's um, an improperly administered uh, individualized education plan. The purpose of one of the purposes of individualized education plans is to create an atmosphere, an environment for the child to be safe. It's not safe when a child is restrained. Lori, where can we look for information to uh, see about parents putting in their child's IEP? Uh, good things like Dr. Leonardi is talking about, and that you definitely don't want your child um, to, for this to happen to them, and that you want to be notified. Uh, in, in any uh, sticky situations? Uh, well, you know, we we encourage all students or all parents to uh, fill out a, a no-consent no uh, sample letter to download that from our website, and that's available on our website. If you go to nationalautism.org and click on the abuse link, uh, there is a sample no-consent form. You can fill that out. Uh, create your own letter that says, I do not give you permission to restrain my child. Um, and that is uh, actually provided by TASH. So we borrowed their sample letter, and thank you to them for that. And every parent should have one of those if restraint is an issue, um, just to ensure the child's safety. Okay. Let me give our listeners some of those resources. To go to the National Autism Association site, that's www.nationalautismassociation.org. If you want to go uh, to TASH, it's A-P-R-A-I-S, appraise.tash.org. You can inform yourself by reading the GAO report also at nationalautismassociation.org, and you can visit sites like familiesagainstrestraintandseclusion.blogspot.com and also appraise.tash.org that we mentioned earlier. We're going to go to break soon, but Lori, what are some things to look for in your child if you suspect they may be being abused? Bruising, um, not wanting to go to school, suddenly not wanting to go to school, having fear of one particular aide or teacher, uh, wetting the bed, um, Behavioral changes, losing, you know, basically potty training, losing your potty training, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, hitting, hitting yourself. If the child mm-hmm. is all of a sudden hitting themselves, that's that's an indication that, that somebody might be smacking them. Uh, definitely look for bruises. Definitely if, if your child all of a sudden does not want to go to school, um, something's Something's up, and that needs to be investigated a little bit further. Okay, so things like bruises or anxiety or self-injurious behaviors, mm-hmm. fear of going to school or of a teacher or of an aide, bedwetting, regression, uh, sleep disturbances, crying. And we will talk more about this when we come back from break. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back with Lori McElwain and Dr. Roy Leonardi. 
learn more. Live better. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. If you have a loved one that is undergoing treatment for substance abuse or mental illness, you owe it to them and yourself to tune in to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. This compassionate and educational talk show will help you help those that you love by better understanding their condition and their personal recovery process. Tune in every Monday at 12 noon Pacific time to One Hour at a Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Recovery begins this hour. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh! Uh, there you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. Back with Dr. Roy Leonardi and Lori McElwain. Dr. Leonardi, you had a comment on what Lori was saying about things that you can look for uh, in your child to, that may indicate that your child is being abused. Those indicators don't usually happen um, by themselves. They usually happen, you know, you just won't see one of those indicators. You'll see several of them, if not all of them, and a few of them will stand out to you. But you should be looking for um, a package of these indicators. And, Lori, you had a very important comment as well about screening. Right. And, you know, I don't know if, if Terry, you've seen the, the latest video of uh, child being abused, caught on camera, one of the aides took a video uh, through their cell phone of a, of a teacher hitting a child and berating a child with autism, the child was nonverbal, uh, you know, we have to ask ourselves, why is she in this field? If she has such a propensity towards anger and abuse, why is she in this field? How could she get this job? Uh, it's, it's definitely important to look at the screening processes that we have in school, um, and, and make adjustments where needed. This is not just an educational field. This takes uh, therapy. It takes creativity. It takes knowing that each child that comes into your classroom is different and is going to have different needs. And if you're not prepared for that, uh, you're going to lose control of the classroom more and you're going to feel 
uh, that you have a lot of control over the children more and that's going to cause a lot of frustration and, and um, you know, breakdowns. So definitely screening is, is a huge issue and needs to be looked at more. Absolutely. Well, again, um, Lori, we talked earlier about the uh, notification that Carolyn Gamici sent about the fact that there will be a family meeting with Congressman George Miller tomorrow in his home district in the San Francisco, Sacramento area, and they want to hear from our listeners. Uh, Adrian Orsino-Brown's uh, fax number is 925-674-0983, and Lori, why don't you tell us what Congressman George Miller's office has been doing? Uh, he's the um, chairman of the Education and Labor Committee. What's he done? Uh, he, he's been great, actually. He's pretty much the, the only man that I've seen that, that stood up and said, there's a problem here, let's do something about it. And he facilitated um, the hearings. He called on uh, the government for the accountability report that was released in May, uh, got a lot of news coverage, is responsible for creating all of this awareness for our kids. He has worked on uh, other pieces of legislation that helps children, in, not only in schools, but um, in private facilities in, in these sort of behavioral modification camps that uh, have sprung up over the years that have no regulations. He's worked hard to get regulations in those. And hopefully uh, there will be regulations in place for our school systems, federal reg- regulations that everybody follows, um, not just one or two states and everybody having different laws. So uh, Chairman Miller is uh, pretty much the one person who is making a difference, and we all need to, to give him our support any way we can. And you have sample, a sample letter or links on your website, right, Lori, National Autism Association, um, for advocacy? Yeah, we do. We have um, a place that you can go to. Uh, if you go to our, our website and click on the abuse link, uh, that will take you to two different letters. Uh, sample letters, one that you can write to the Education and Labor Committee, uh, the other that you can write to your state lawmakers, outlining pretty much what our children need in order to stay safe in school. Now, Dr. Leonardi, you're speaking at the National Autism Conference November 12th to 15th at the Hyatt Regency in Weston, Florida. Am I correct? Yes, that's true. Okay, and what will you be speaking at that lovely location about? Um, I'm going to be talking about um, the... Uh, the dangers of restraint, the dangers of secluding a child, especially children with disabilities. And I'm going to be offering, I'm going to talk about the legality of, you know, the danger an adult puts themselves into when they start to use physical restraints. And then I'm going to talk about uh, some interventions that would be useful in de-escalating a child. And Actually, the whole process begins with um, using the um, the IEP for children with disabilities, using that IEP to structure a behavior plan that talks to the child's uh, target behavior. In other words, what what is the behavior that is causing adults to get um, so upset that they have to try and restrain a child, and then to modify Uh, While you're modifying the child's behavior, you're also modifying the adult's behavior. Hmm. And, you know, applied behavioral analysis becomes really, really significant at that point. Uh 
Wow. Wow, that sounds like a wonderful lecture. Um, Dr. Leonardi will be at the National Autism Conference, which is, again, November 12th through 15th, and that website is www.nationalautismconference.org. There are other uh, wonderful speakers like Soma Mukhopadhyay uh, talking about the rapid prompting method, and, Lori, I really applaud you for having her speaking there. Um, why don't you tell us about the training program that you are uh, instituting and will be uh, at different conferences such as NAA and Autism One? Well, it's very basic training. We're going to um, film such presentations as Dr. Leonardi's and, and be able to share those with districts. On a broader, broader scale, uh, we're looking to implement some form of universal training that can be available to all school districts. Uh, that everybody can follow, especially aides um, that don't have the benefit uh, of hands-on training and maybe the funding's not there to bring somebody in to train specifically uh, for this to aides. And so training is a big hot button for us. We hope that we'll be able to get this done rather quickly. It'll be available to everybody and um, even parents. Parents need this too. So, well, this is another wonderful program provided by the National Autism Association, who has so many beneficial programs, including the Family First program and the Helping Hand program. Are there any points that we haven't covered that either of you would like to talk about in the few minutes remaining? Uh, my my um, my belief is that uh, a lot of adults who uh, use restraints, uh, the, the situation becomes a point that uh, the adult who's the bigger person physically uh, uses um, physical restraint as a way to intimidate somebody who's smaller. Yeah. Lori? Definitely uh, ask your, your child's teacher if your child has had to be restrained. Most of us parents don't know. When we ask, we get that surprising answer. Uh, so definitely ask, how many times have my, has my child been restrained? Uh, is this an ongoing problem? And, 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 you know, probe them about that. Get the answers. Another thing is teachers. Teachers who see other teachers abusing a child, um, looking as though they could abuse a child, definitely report that. Too many times these things go unreported for years until the teacher has left the school district and is now comfortable in telling on somebody you, uh, you're a hero. You're not a tattletale. This is mm-hmm. definitely a huge problem, and these kids are going to continue being abused if you don't speak up. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Oh, I'm sorry. If you're not, if the if the adult is not trained in restraint, especially in the school situation, if they're not trained in restraint, they shouldn't use or participate in a restraint. Absolutely. It's illegal. Um, in Connecticut, it's illegal to do that. That's an absolutely vital point, and I want to thank both of you for your work in this area and for continuing to provide information on this vital, uh, absolutely life or death, literally life or death topic. Yes. Thank you both. And to our listeners, on September 1st, occupational therapist Stu Kratz and Stephanie Mock will be um, on the show talking about success with craniosacral therapy. Don't forget to look up the National Autism Association Conference at www.nationalautismconference.org. 
Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. For questions about this program, please email me at toranga at autismone.org. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Enzymedica would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit AutismOne.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.